Hello and welcome to The Natural Selection, where this week's theme is Secret Santa. Hello, thanks for joining us today on The Natural Selection. We are a group of taxonomists who want to bring our passion for nature into the wilds. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, I am Naomi, and we're joined today by Nick. Hello. Hello. And Nick. <laughs> Hello. Hi, guys. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Super. Great. Have any nature interactions this week? I had one. I definitely had one this week, and I was like, oh, i got to remember this for the episode, and now I can't remember it. Maybe it'll come back to you in a second. Yeah. Sure. I have nothing, particularly because I have been restricting my movements in line with restrictions visiting Ireland. So the only thing I've heard is birds on my roof. I can't identify them, but they're up there. I can hear them. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I could, I could, I'd probably identify a pigeon from my roof, but that's about it. Yeah, it's definitely, it's not a pigeon. I'm pretty sure it's not a pigeon. Based on sound alone, what's the probability that it's a night parrot? <laughs> <laughs> I would say slim to none, but you know. But not based on ecology, just based on sound. Oh, based on sound. Mm, based on sound. I don't know. I don't know what a night parrot sounds like. I guess like. I don't know what it is at all. So like, I don't know, 40%. <laughs> nice. Those are good odds. <laughs> <laughs> I've had almost no interactions with nature. I feel like my week has been dominated by um, cycling in the cold to and from where I'm allowed to be. It yeah. seems with starlings, actually, but they were on the floor rather than doing exciting things. On the floor? Yeah, like eating grub. On the ground? Y- yeah. What? Is this what another you... weird British thing that I don't know yet? I don't know. What are you confused by? Naomi, are you confused? The floor is explicitly for inside places. I would never say the floor and mean somewhere outside. Really? Yeah. Ah. Oh, cool. I suppose I would use it because it wasn't earth or dirt, it was concrete. I understand. And so I think with that, we should get started with the news. So if you guys are ready. I'm ready. Mm-hmm. Great. Please join us, listeners, after this short break. Where we'll be back with our news this week. Hello. Welcome back. So, Nick, did you want to start us off this week with your news? Happily, Naomi. So I have some fun news this week. It's pretty good, given a couple months ago, one of my news pieces was the Q State of the Plants and Fungi, which was really grim. It was the one with the forest fire on the cover, and that said 40% of plant species are endangered, which hasn't changed, but um, there is some good news. There are some new plants. Q Gardens has published a roundup of the most exciting new species. Well, they don't call it that, but I think it, it seems to me like the most exciting new species of plants that have been discovered and named in 2020. It's a cool list. I definitely recommend searching for it on the Kew Gardens website. 
I did just want to point out a couple of my favorites from this list. It's a new species of fungus, a mushroom, and it's known as Cortinarius heatherae. Have you guys heard of this one? And if you have, don't spoil it for the others. I've not, but is it named after someone called Keith? Oh, sorry, it's heatherae. Oh, sorry. But uh, good thinking. Any guesses on what it might be named after? Heath Ledger. Good guess, but no. Like Heath, like a Heath? Also Wuthering Heights. You guys are so good. You're going a little bit too outside of the um, the norm for this one because it's named after the place it was found, Heathrow Airport. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> a new species of fungus found near the Heathrow Airport. They're a type of web-capped toadstool mushroom. They were discovered by a field mycologist, Andy Overall, and delightfully, they're named after his wife, Heather, not Heathrow. One of the other of my favorites here, uh, Q calls it this, so it's not me giving it this epithet, but uh, the ugliest orchid in the world has been discovered. It's uh, Gastrodia agnicellus, and it was found in a forest in Madagascar. It's pretty small, only up to 11 millimeters in the flowers, but they're small, brown, and to me they look kind of like, it looks like the inside of the throat of a low-budget horror movie monster from the 80s. But apparently it's interesting, in, well, it's interesting for many reasons, but apparently it doesn't have any photosynthetic tissue, but depends on fungus for nutrition. There's more, but you'll have to go to the website to find out. Great. Thank you, Nick, for sharing that with us. Lots of fun fungi and plants there that we can learn about. So my news this week was about a dinosaur uh, that fossil that has been found. Uh, so what's interesting about this dinosaur is that it was found to have elaborate ribbon-like structures projecting out of its back. So this was published in Cretaceous Research. It was published by a group from the University of Portsmouth. Sorry, the University of Portsmouth. That's not right either. The University of Portsmouth, close enough. This new species is called Eubirajara jubatus, and it was a chicken-sized dinosaur with a mane of long fur down its back. So it had these stiff ribbons that were projecting out of its back from its shoulders. What's interesting about this is it's the first dinosaur, the oldest, that has been found with these sort of integumentary display. So a lot of other dinosaurs would have things that are made out of bone. So like a lot of crests or things like that made out of bone. But this would have been part of its skin structure. So it's not fur and it's not... um, technically feathers it's closer to feathers than it would be to anything else but it's sort of its own thing unique to this group but what's interesting is that it might show insights into the development of these display feathers in birds it was a quite a flamboyant feature and they think that it was probably used to display to mates or maybe to display to rivals they can't prove that it's a male but they do suspect that it is a male and probably young just based on the displays in other kinds of males. But it's a cool insight into the history of display features in dinosaurs and potentially in avian dinosaurs as well. So I thought I'd share that news with you guys this week. Nick, would you like to round off our new segment with your piece of news? Yeah, baboons. You guys like baboons? I like baboons. I'm going to talk about baboons. And we're not the only people who like baboons. So Julia Fischer, or Julia Fischer, at the German Primate Centre in uh, Göttingen. Now, they were looking at social interactions between the Papio Papio baboons in the Neocolocoba National Park in Senegal. 
And what they found is, and I thought this is of particular interest to us as a group, is that they found that baboons potentially have different accents. Whoa. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we've all got um, distinct accents here. And baboons potentially might as well. So what they were looking at is baboons often make grunting noises. In baboons, they live in gangs. And these gangs are made up of several parties. And each party consists of male and several female uh, sort of mates. And it's sort of a very tolerant society and there's very little competition and there's a lot of bonding interactions and males grunt as a sign of friendship. And they were looking at the males in these gangs and they analysed the frequency, call length and tone of each sound to determine similarities. And they found that baboons in social groups have similar grunt sounds and that same thing is not correlated by genetics. Because sometimes brothers or sisters might move into different social groups. And yeah, their grunts are not linked by genetics, but rather by their friends, which means that their vocalizations influenced by their environment, very similar to us. It's why I never pronounce the letter R, why Naomi calls it or, and why Nick, you say R. Like a pirate. Yeah. Uh, so what I picked up from that is that you're comparing us to baboons. That's cool. Thanks. That's right. I feel like <laughs> we deserve it. Yeah. No, that was that's really interesting. I think also it kind of it feels like to me like it's almost like slang is probably not quite the right word, but it sounds like it's almost like these social groups create sort of like it an accent or like a a unique pattern of talking, which I think is cool too. Yeah. I know each generation does that with humans as well, you know, and if you try and use youth slang you just sound like an idiot. Except me, I sound lit. So I think with that, that brings our news segment to an end and thank you guys for sharing your news with us this week please do join us after this short break listeners we'll be back with our theme this week we've gone a little bit rogue we have an interesting theme idea more than a topic so what we're going to do is call secret santa so we're going to talk about things that perhaps we haven't had an opportunity to talk about in earlier episodes or things that maybe wouldn't fit in episodes but None of us know what the other is going to talk about, so let's see how this one goes. Please join us after this short break. Hello, welcome back. We are here with our theme this week. So Nick, you wanted to kick us off with something that you haven't had an opportunity to talk about before, or it's a theme that you find interesting? We did have a discussion that we were a bit worried that maybe what if we accidentally picked the same topic? And I was very confident with this because if you guys have picked this topic, I'm very worried about you. I want to talk about beta vulgaris or the common beetroot. Aha. Excellent. Uh, we're not. Uh, you and I don't overlap, Nick. I was worried <laughs> that you would pick one of the ones that I had chosen and you haven't. So the great news. So beetroot was probably domesticated in the Middle East, but weirdly, it's probably grown for its greens rather than the roots, which we normally associate with it, uh, that bright red root. But in Roman times, they know it was used as a food stuff. And it, by then, the root had become a staple. So that, that red root had become a staple and remains an important staple in European cuisine all over the continent. So, yeah, I had it in England. I think it's quite common in Ireland as well. Um, in Poland, I know they cover it in horseradish uh, and use it in salads and things. But it's also had other uses. It previously in Victorian times, they used it to colour wine, which is not a great review of Victorian wine, I must say. But it contains something quite interesting, which is, a, I think it's pronounced adebic acid, which is rarely occurs in nature. And it happens to naturally occur in beetroot. But this acid is used in the production of nylon. 
Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Do you guys know where the word nylon comes from? I'm just going to nylon these clothes over here. <laughs> no, no, not sure. <laughs> <laughs> hard no. Hard no from Nick 2 over here. Uh, well, it was developed in two cities, and it's named after them. The Nile and the Amazon rivers. It's New York and London. Uh, so that's why it's called Nylon, N-Y-Lon, uh, which I thought was fun. Now, famously, beetroot can change the colour of your faeces and your urine. If you drink too much, some people lack the ability to break it down, and it can turn your urine red, which might cause alarm, and should probably cause alarm if your urine's red. Make sure that you haven't just eaten a load of beetroot, and even if you have probably check but yeah and it can also turn your feces red but this should not carry any health concerns but the reason i love beetroot is because with any huge crop there's a lot of knowledge about the insects which feed off it because they will cause an economic damage and beetroot are overwhelmingly eaten by lepidoptera species and i've created a quiz for you guys if you guys are up for it so there's many Lepidoptera species that eat on beetroot, and they all have ridiculous names. So I've got four different uh, questions for you, and in each round, two of the names will be real, and one of the names I will have made up. So I'm going to ask you each to see if you can identify which name I've made up in uh, a round I like to call Float Like a Butterfly, Sting Like a Beet. Excellent. Oh, excellent. Okay, so remember, two of these are Lepidoptera, moths or butterflies, or, or caterpillars, obviously, um, and one of them I've made up whole cloth. So the first three are Flame Shoulder, Ginsberg's Howler, Large Yellow Underwing. Naomi, which one do you think is made up? The first one. Flame Shoulder. Oh, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe not. I don't know. Okay, I'm going to stick with it. I'll stick with it. Oh, she's gone flame, flame shoulder. What were you thinking? Nick? Were you leaning on flame shoulder? I was. That was going to be my first guess. Oh, do you know what, Nick? Uh, everyone, I thought you'd get this right. Uh, Is it large yellow underwing? It's not. It's Ginsberg's howler, <laughs> uh, which I chose because Alan Ginsberg is a very famous beat poet. Okay, great. <laughs> Excellent. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. So the next round, we have the hook cross wing. Nutmeg or turnip moth? Nick, which one do you think I have made up? Turnip moth. You're very confident on that one. Naomi? Nutmeg. Nutmeg. Oh, interesting. What made you go for nutmeg? Um, I'm trying to delve into your psyche. (laughs) You would would think of. No, I just, I just, I just picked one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a dangerous place, my psyche. I feel like Nick was leaning that I'd have gone for the, the double bluff, that I'd pick the, I'd make up one that was like a, a normal name. Uh, but you're both wrong. It's the hook cross wing. Um, I picked hook and cross because they're both types of punches. If you were looking to beat someone. Um... Ah, to beat, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, the third Excellent. round. Excellent. <laughs> Third round. I told you they were weird names. So <laughs> that does mean that nutmeg, flame shoulder, and large yellow, large yellow underwing are all real, all real lepidoptera. So the next one we have angle shade, the flam paradiddle, or the cetaceous Hebrew character. Now Naomi, which of those two? I'll read them again. We've got angle shades, flam paradiddle, 
or cetaceous Hebrew character? I'm going to go for flam paradiddle. Yeah, you don't look confident. No, not confident. Oh. I I can't think of a connection to beat, so I'm not sure. But you know, uh, Nick, which one are you going to go for? Hebrew character. Cetaceous Hebrew character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I feel like that one's so weird that I could never have made that up. That one is a real moth. <laughs> I really don't know why. Cetaceous means hairy, but I don't know why it's called Cetaceous Hebrew character. I did Google it for a bit. None of them offered an explanation. Angle Shades, didn't even bother to look up why that was called Angle Shades. Uh, but Flam Paradiddle is uh, a rudiment of a drum beat. A paradiddle is a drum beat and a flam is a, another type of drum beat. So uh, there you go. And now the last one, Nick, to go first. It's three here. We have Ghost Moth, Heart and Dart. Or Winston's Amen Brother. Which one of those is not a butterfly or moth? Winston's Amen Brother. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Naomi, which one are you leaning on? That's what I was going to say as well. Okay, you've both gone for Winston's Amen Brother and you've both got it right. Oh, finally. <laughs> uh, do you, either of you know why I picked Winston's Amen Brother? No, no, to be honest. It's one of the most common breakbeats ever sampled. It's a very, very common drum riff that you will have almost certainly heard. I think it's used in um, Straight Outta Compton, but it's very often used in drum and bass and things. And it's by the Winstons and their song called Amen, Brother. But yeah, I think Naomi takes that 2-1. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, our first victor of floats like a butterfly, stings like a beat. But, um... <laughs> Wow, that I, I'm not sure which I'm more impressed slash shocked by your ability to just like make up names based on beats or <laughs> those butterflies. I'm sorry, nutmeg and cetaceous Hebrew character. Those are, <laughs> those are crazy lepidopter names. And that's ignoring like flame shoulder. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Large yellow underwing, which sounds like like a child no it sounds like a neural net trying to describe butterflies like <laughs> you've taken everything that like the, all the text describing the butterflies and put it into something that looks sort of right but doesn't make sense <laughs> so yeah there's a little journey uh through beetroots and lepidoptera there for you guys thank you thank, thank you, you for that i enjoyed that and i won so you know <laughs> it's fine it's fine i don't have a competitive streak naomi uh, so you don't mind getting beat. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's take a beat and then we'll keep going. <laughs> At least we got to the root of who was better there. Nice. <laughs> so Nick, I think that ties in really well with what you're about to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Totally related. In fact, no, Naomi, I might even say that it's, what's the word? Comeuppance? Oh, we'll see. Okay. We'll get there. So I wanted to, for those of you who tuned in to last week's episode uh, on Christmas, we all sort of talked about Christmas themes and I mentioned chestnuts and all the wonderful things that chestnuts can be used for. And I want to start off my topic this week by talking about all the wonderful things that this organism can be used for. 
and see if you guys can guess what organism it is. We'll start with the sort of fun ones. Uh, it can be used as weed control. It can be used as alarm system. It can be used as food. It can be used as a pet. It can be used, uh, and I think this is probably the last one, it can be used to help you sleep. So of these five things, we have weed control, alarm system, pet, food, help you sleep. Those are our options. I'm going to have a good pop here. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go confidently in while Naomi, Naomi looks confused and thinks. I'm going to go two-footed here with goat. Oh, good guess. But no, Naomi? You know, actually, Nick, you're probably right, except I don't know how they would help you sleep. I'd rather not talk about that, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Cat? Although my suspicion is that it's actually, I feel like it might be a plant or something. I feel like, I don't know if you can have a a pet as a plant, but yeah, I'm going to stick with my guess of cats. Cat and goat. Good guess is both. Um, I'm going to give this one to Nick just because goat is closer sounding to the name. <laughs> and I think they're both equally distant. But um, it's uh, this is the where the comeuppance comes in. It's Naomi's favorite animal. Geese! Geese! Exactly. Uh, <laughs> geese and the wonderful ways they can be used. So rather than encountering them in horror in the wild, geese can be used, of course, as meat and eggs. They're actually one of the fattiest kinds of poultry. But they can also be used as weed control, uh, and they're commonly used both in water systems and in fields, like cornfields and cotton fields, to cut back on weeds, because they eat the weeds that uh, aren't the main crop, and they sort of keep down with stuff like water hyacinth that grows over water, grows on the surface of the water and prevents light coming through. So they're used all over the world for weed control. They can also be used as pets, though I don't know why anyone would want to do that. Yeah, but I agree with you on that one, Naomi. Finally, the last thing, I mean, this is quite a short one, but I really, this is the main reason that I brought this to our attention today. Geese have been used historically and in contemporary times as watchdogs or watch geese, as the case may be. They're quite tameable and they squawk loudly when they encounter strangers or predators. So they have been used, the use of geese as watchdogs has been recorded as early as 390 BC, when Rome used them to help alert them of attacking Gallic troops. And they have been, they've replaced guard dogs in really high locations like the high Andes, where dogs don't do so well, but geese who fly do better at higher elevations. And most recently, they've been, a research article was published in 1991 by the National Research Council of the United States Army National Press, uh, looking at the possibility of geese as an economically viable watchdog system for sensitive military embankments. So the more you know. Wow. I just realized how it's used to help you sleep. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, their feathers are used to fill your pillows and bedding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And coats, too, right? And coats. And keep you warm. Amy, mm-hmm. you really shouldn't be sleeping in your coats. <laughs> she can do what she wants Nick. she's yeah. important yeah <laughs> and the heating system isn't the most reliable you know <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting yeah I you know have I warmed to geese do I feel better about them no but 
it's good to know that they're usable you know that they do some good they're usable yeah they're usable yeah. They're useful. Useful. That's, that's what I need to say. <laughs> that does sound more sinister than useful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, certainly more exploitative. Yeah. But that's great. And interesting that you were also had drew inspiration from the Christmas episode. I actually took a little bit of inspiration as well, because something when I was looking up reindeer, if you listened to last week's episode something that they eat is lichens so i decided to talk a little to research a little bit about lichens lichens are a composite organism so they're a symbiosis between two different organisms they are fungi and algae or sometimes cyanobacteria so they're pretty ubiquitous they're found all over the place but they're kind of subtle and you wouldn't necessarily notice them but there's uh, three main types of lichens or growth forms that you can find in lichens. So you've got fruticose, which are sort of branched shrub-like lichens. They attach to twigs with like a sucker-like holdfast. There's folios. These are leaf-like lichens, and they attach to a twig on the lower surface. And then there's crustose lichens. And as you could probably guess from the name, they are crust-like lichens, and they are quite well embedded into the into the bark so they can only be removed if you cut the bark but what's interesting about lichens is that they can actually be used as a pretty good indicator of pollution so I want to talk a little bit about that depending on what lichens you can find in your area it tells you how good or how clean the air is because lichens they're they're pretty sturdy and they're good at living in most places but they are very sensitive to air pollution so depending on what type of lichen you see indicates the the air quality. So if you don't see any lichens where you live, this means that the air quality is pretty bad. If you see the crustose lichens only, so the the kind of the low relief lichens, that means that there's poor air quality. If you're seeing some folios lichens as well, that it's moderate or okay air quality. And if you're seeing all three types, so you're you're starting to see the fruticose lichen so those are the branchy ones that means there's very good air quality so let me give you some examples of some lichens that you might see and things that that tells you about the environment the reason that they're able to tell you about air pollution is because they're sensitive to two different in particular to do different things so one is nitrogen pollution so nitrogen is pretty harmless we breathe it in all the time but when nitrogen is heated and combined with oxygen in car engines nitrogen oxides are created Um, and this nitrogen dioxide in the air can be a powerful polluter and can be harmful for humans in high concentrations. Some lichens aren't present when there's pollution but other lichens are more likely to appear when there's high concentrations of certain pollutants. So for example the golden shield lichen Xanthoria paratina can live in areas where there's very high levels of nitrogen, especially ammonia. So it's common on trees, buildings near farmlands, and also on sea cliffs because bird droppings have a, a lot of nitrogen in them. Um, sulfur dioxide is another pollutant that lichens can tell us about, um, and this comes from coal burning in industry. So in the UK, there's less coal being burnt, so some lichens are kind of returning. And in other cities as well, I think in New York, there's certain lichens that are reappearing after being not present for a while. So Sulfur dioxide is also not great for human health. It can irritate the uh, eyes, the throat, the lungs, and it can also be kind of damaging for people with asthma. So some lichens that you might see in areas where 
there is no sulfur dioxide or limited sulfur dioxide pollution because they're very sensitive to it is usnea lichens. They're also called old man's beard. As you can guess, they look sort of beard-like. They are the verticose type of lichen. So they're branched and they come off the twig or branch that they grow on from like a sucker-like growth. Um, but lichens are also used in other areas, not just for telling us about pollution. We get them for a potential as a potential source of antibiotics. They're also used in antifungal and anti-cancer drugs. And they've also been used in perfumes and insects, as well as dyeing. There's lots of different types of lichens. <laughs> dyeing, sorry. Dyeing clothes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they're, they're important for plants and animals as well, because they're able to grow in, in places that can be considered quite barren, and they can make other they can make nutrients and things available for other their for other animals so they're they're quite important and they're used for food as i mentioned reindeer eat them and also squirrels snails and insects eat them as well so there's also really cool applications for lichens also worth having a look some guides on lichens so you can go out into your local area and have a look um you may be able to learn something about the pollution in your area or hopefully the lack of pollution in your area depending on where you live so that is what I learned about lichens today. If I had to make a guess, Naomi, on whether or not Nick and I are going to find some lichen around us, I think it's <laughs> that likely. Lichen, likely. Likely like Unlikely lichen. <laughs> we'll report back next week. Yeah. Berlin is from a swamp, isn't it? What is? Berlin was built on a swamp, wasn't it? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Flat, flat, flat land. But I lichen... All that lichen chat. Boom. <laughs> so, Nick, I hope that you likened my topic. What would you like to share with us? Um, well, I like to think that my uh, what I'm going to talk about won't be axolotting of you. <laughs> um, I want to talk about axolotls because <laughs> I accidentally researched them thinking they lived in caves caves and then realized I was probably thinking of Olms because we did a whole cave episode and they don't live in caves they live in a lake in Mexico uh, they're sometimes called the Mexican walking fish but they're not a fish at all because as we know that people are terrible at naming things but they do walk and they do live in Mexico so that is a good start for naming it but yeah really 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 went awry with the fish it's not a fish it's basically it's an amphibian but it is sort of very much confined to the water because it still has external lungs which it uses to breathe, which is very much the big distinction between it and other salamanders, essentially what it is. What is unusual about axolotls is they re they reach adulthood without undergoing metamorphosis. So we're all familiar with the amphibian metamorphosis of tadpoles into frog and whatever salamanders are into salamanders. This idea of metamorphosis, axolotls don't do it. They become uh, sexually active without metamorphosizing into salamanders and they sort of reproduce and create more axolotls. They aren't unique to this. Some others do do it. And some other species which don't uh, display neoteny uh, can also get stuck in their pre-metamorphosis state if there's not certain nutrients. So they are really vulnerable, as a lot of amphibians are, because of the way they absorb things through their skin, uh, to water pollution. And living near Mexico City, this is a big, big problem due to massive urbanisation. Mexico City is an enormous place. So they are very, very much endangered. So axolotls, like other amphibians, can regenerate their limbs, and they are studied extensively for this. So yeah, what's interesting about them is salamanders, we usually think of green, brown, yellow, that sort of colour. These are very much white. They're quite amazing. 
so what's really interesting is they have actually identified the nutrients which are required to be, to metamorphosize. So looking at other species which haven't metamorphosized, they find if there's not enough iodine, that salamanders won't become salamanders. So they did something when they were researching axolotls. They injected them with iodine. And you know what happened? They turned into fish. <laughs> they metamorphosized. Oh, my God. They became salamanders, something that they would never, ever do in the wild. And this is quite amazing because obviously axolotls are a different species to the ones near them, which are the tiger salamanders. When they injected them with iodine, they developed into a salamander that looked a bit like the tiger salamander, but had a few crucial differences, including things like longer toes, which would reinforce the idea that it's not just a young tiger salamander. It was actually an entirely separate species that is related to the tiger salamander. But yeah, I sort of found this really interesting that it's a really weird way to sort of evolve into a new species is just sort of getting stuck in your development. I, Nick, I actually, this is, I was reading something the other day that was their argument of this paper, and I'm not sure how uh, realistic this is, but their, their suggestion was that most evolution occurs through this type of what's called pedomorphism or like getting stuck at a developmental stage, which is, yeah, I would love to know more about this. It's really cool that I didn't know that there were like, it's like evolving a Pokemon, like taking this, uh, like, and giving it a moonstone or iodine. And then, like, it turns into something bigger, greater, the adult that you never knew existed. I wonder if a salamander would be an axolotl in a fight. Huh. But salamanders can go on land, so it probably have a wider move set. So it'd be grass type and water type, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. And fire. Is a fire salamander? Is your fire salamander? Yeah, there is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they they actually identified the reason why there there has metamorphic failure, and it's caused by a lack of thyroid stimulating hormone. So they can't produce this, um, whereas other salamanders can. Hmm. Cool. That's interesting. I suppose that kind of makes sense with iodine as well, because I know iodine can affect like thyroid conditions in humans as well i think i think they get yeah if we have a lack of iodine you get a goiter goiter yeah you get a goiter on your neck which is a huge growth so yeah eat your iodine Mm. thanks for that added to table salt thanks for that nick that's the things that i didn't know about the axolotl and nick you've got some interesting information to share with us now i'm sure it ties in nicely with nick's segment Thank you, Naomi, for that very specific uh, and engaged introduction to my topic, which you totally know about in beforehand, which is contemporary art projects involving animals. I wanted to share with you some of my favorite projects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously. Duh, you couldn't guess that one, Naomi. <laughs> the thing is, like, I should have. Like, it makes sense. Like, that would be some of the topic you talk about. But no, I, 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 didn't, I didn't see that one coming. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's okay. I threw you off with geese earlier. You were so you. Were, I think you were maybe there was part of you that was worried about it being another goose situation. I understand. So no, I want. There's just a couple of things that I wanted to talk about. There's so many projects relating to net, the natural world and plants and animals, and it's all over the place. But thinking about our chestnut conversation last week and our geese conversation this week, it led me to a project that I really love and have. Been, I haven't really found an opportunity to share. So this grab bag Secret Santa episode is the perfect opportunity for it. This is a project. It's a photo book. So a series of about 
65 photos. So Giovanna Silva is a photographer who was working in Kenya, documenting the last male white rhinoceros named Sudan, who uh, died a couple of years ago and was being kept. He lived most of his life in the Prague Zoo, but near the end of his life, he was relocated to Kenya, where he lived in an open but protected enclosure with some of the other female white rhinoceroses. Uh, the book is called, the project is called Good Boy 0372, which is the nickname that the guards called him, uh, when, because they have people stationed by him at all times to keep from, keep him from being poached, uh, for his horn and his breeding number. So it's sort of this like combination of the personal and the mechanical and thinking about how we, I think, engage with conservation and animals as personalities or celebrities. Uh, especially when there's a sense of loss involved when we think about extinction. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff going on in this project, and the photos are really beautiful. They're close-ups of the skin of the rhinoceros, the sort of like eyes and eyelashes and the wrinkles in the skin. And at times they are really abstract and they just sort of look like landscapes from above. Uh, and it makes this connection between like the landscape of the habitat and the animal's body in a really beautiful way that makes us do think. I like it a lot. It's a cool book. And the pictures are online if you search for Good Boy 0372. I think you know me very well that when advertising a book, you tell me how good the pictures are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's no text. There's hardly any text. Maybe there's an intro paragraph, but nothing else. And um, in a nice detail, the pictures get more and more transparent as the book goes along. So when you look at the last couple of pages, they're almost just white as, because this, it's sort of been like wiped off or erased from Earth, it has been now. So uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention is another cool book photo project. And this is the last thing I want to talk about today. It's called similarly named Pig 05049. And this is not named after a specific animal. So there is no Pig 05049, but it's an imagined pig. And all of the different, it's a documentation of all the different ways that pig bodies are used in the industry. And pigs take the cake, literally. There are pigs in your cakes, for sure. And they are used in way more ways than geese and even way more ways than chestnuts. But this book does a great job of documenting all the products that come out of pigs, including the collagen from skin that makes gelatin. It's used in things like cheesecake and jello. And then from ashes from pig bones are used in train breaks as a coagulant, including things like aluminum molds fine bone china, sandpaper, bullets, cigarettes, that comes from the hemoglobin in the blood, which acts as a, it's part of the filter. From the fat, fatty acids to make soap, uh, and fatty acids to make paints as well. And it's just a huge, the book is like dozens and dozens of pages, or at least a hundred of these things. And they're all photographs of the objects rather than the pig. So a reverse of the rhinoceros book. But I think a really cool reminder that everything around us is made from something from the natural world. I think that's something that we forget, especially about the news that we had in an episode a couple of weeks ago about the total mass of things on Earth that we've made being more than the total biomass. Um, it's easy to forget that all of that stuff comes from the natural world. It's a good reminder of that. So those two things are the, th- the things I wanted to share with you guys. Just a little something different for our fun episode. So my topic and my final topic that I wanted to talk about today, well, I want to talk about pandas. There's something that uh, hasn't really come up before, I hope, anyway. But I want to talk about something that's kind of interesting about them that 
I suppose, is a little bit of a paradox in the way that they've evolved, but also potentially it's not. So this is some research that I was looking at that came out last year. So, so I was looking at a review article and also the original research as well, looking at the diet of these pandas. So pandas are herbivores, as you're probably aware. They eat bamboo. They have several adaptations for eating bamboo. So the giant panda, Alluropoda melanolucia, is quite well known. It often gets a lot of attention as a conservation because they're not doing particularly well in the wild. So, But it still remains quite enigmatic. So 99% of its diet is bamboo. And the panda, as I mentioned, has a lot of adaptations that allow it to subsist on this diet. So it's got a thumb, which isn't really a thumb, but it's a hypertrophied, hypertrophied wrist bone that enables dexterous handling. So they have lots of adaptations that are that are suitable for herbivory. So they're their thumb. They also have powerful muscles in their jaw and a very strong mandible jawbone and also large and flat teeth that enable them to crush up vegetation. So in terms of their hard tissue anatomy, they're they're quite well adapted for this tough fibrous bamboo bamboo diet. But their soft tissues and their insides aren't as well adapted. So they do have a high proportion of cyanide digesting microbe. There's a lot of cyanide in bamboo, and this is very useful. But in general, their gut microbiome as a whole is a lot more like bears or carnivores. And they don't really have very many cellulose digesting digesting bacteria that would be typical for herbivores. So this is this is really weird. It they have these adaptations for herbivory, but also it's not doesn't seem to have fully taken over. They also have a very short gut which again is very uncommon for herbivores. Usually they'd have a very long gut because this is really, again, really useful for fermentation and microbial digestion. While they're really good at taking in, getting and eating bamboo, they are bad at digesting it. So they only take in about 20% of the dry matter. So this is kind of an interesting an interesting sort of paradox, if you will. But this study uh, that this research article was looking at in current biology, um, so it was produced by Ni et al. in 2019, so they actually think that the, there's a distinction between their diet and their nutritional niche. What is meant by that is basically, so even though that they consume, what they're consuming is they actually are taking a different sort of nutrient than you would expect out of it. So it's looking at the macronutrients, and so that's fat, proteins, carbohydrates, and they actually have a very high protein diet. So they get a lot of their energy from protein, about as much as carnivores or hyper carnivores would, which is not what you'd expect for this herbivore. So really, what this study is suggesting is that it's actually potentially done on purpose so that even though their gut isn't good at digesting this fiber and cellulose, it's good at taking out the protein that it actually wants. Um, and so it just consumes lots and lots of material it doesn't use most of it, but it takes what it needs. So it takes the protein from its diet. And so it allows it to sort of take, to use up this niche that isn't really used by other herbivores because bamboo is hard to eat. And also potentially, actually microbial fermentation may not be very good for it. Um, it's not particularly good in vitro. This is something really that I found really cool so that it, it might actually not just be, because when I was first looking at this and, and something that I've always sort of considered is that just pandas either didn't fully didn't fully go all the way in their evolution or they're just maladapted. But actually, this may be 
sort of on purpose in a way because they don't want the fiber so they just get rid of all this fiber they eat really rapidly and they tend to excrete their food quite rapidly but they take out the protein that they that they want instead so perhaps on what the face of something that seems like a mal- maladaptation may actually be something useful obviously this is something that's not very easy to prove in, in evolutionary sort of speaking but it's definitely something interesting to think about you know it may just be a coincidence but it is something that that something the study looks at is kind of the division between what they actually eat but what they actively take out of the food that they eat so it's, it's kind of an, an interesting way to look at it in kind of a bigger picture sort of sense I suppose yeah I'd always thought about it with pandas is my assumption was that they had switched to this food relatively recently and hadn't had a chance to evolve the specialities required to eat that food but it's kind of an interesting way to look at it that maybe yeah they're getting from this food what they need so why would they change exactly yeah and I think as well what was sort of interesting because I thought the same but what's interesting is that they have some of these other adaptations that would have taken like equally as long to like their teeth and their their thumb that would have taken equally long to kind of evolve but they're sort of missing some of the other ones you'd expect but yeah it's interesting that it may not be detrimental for them that they're able to just take the protein and what they actually want from the the bamboo cool so yeah, that is my research that I did on pandas. Oh, I liked so I, it. Thank you. So I think with that, that brings us to the end of this very interesting and unique episode. Thank you for listening to us this year. And we'll be back next year, which just so happens to be next week, with a new episode. Please do join us in. And thank you so much for your support and listenership this year. We've really appreciated it. We'll be back next year with lots of new things, hopefully. Thank you for listening and, and goodbye. Goodbye. Um, well, sorry, I've forgotten who's going first. <laughs> Um, was it you, Nick? Well, that's one of you. <laughs> so, Nick, did you want to start us off this week with your news? Happily, Naomi. Yeah. I totally know, knew which one of you was going to talk there. <laughs>